Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. When we're talking about something like the cannabis referendum, a lot of people are like, do you like or support cannabis? That's not the question. I'm sorry, the reality is I can't invent cannabis. Like, that cat is out the bag. Welcome to The Shit Show. adults lying about. He literally made me think if I ever went near the marinara, I was gonna be absolutely fucked. Who's all G with anybody going to jail for doing something that pretty much everybody has done? The answer to everything. I mean, oh totally. Sexism, legalized cannabis. (laughs) We sort it all out. Welcome to the latest episode of What's that show called? Is this really how we're going to start? <laughs> I think so. Okay, let's go with it. Uh, yeah, we're the shit show. We are the shit show. And today we have a really exciting episode for you guys. Yeah, we are chatting with Chloe Swarbrick. Okay, boomer. And for those who don't know who Chloe is... She is a New Zealand Green Party member who was first elected for Parliament in 2017. She is the Green Party spokesperson for the drug law reform that we are talking about today, as well as mental health and a bunch of other things. She was also elected um, at the age of 23, which is pretty fucking cool. So, young people, if you're out there wanting to make your voice heard, you can. So today with Chloe, we sat down to talk about the Cannabis Legalisation and Control Referendum, which is happening this year. So when you're going to vote in the general election, there is going to be two referendums and one of them is going to be the Cannabis Legalisation Referendum. Basically, the proposed bill sets out a way that the government can control and regulate cannabis because the reality is it's here, it's being used, we need to regulate it. Yeah, so they're going to be able to control how people can produce, supply or consume cannabis. The main purpose of the bill is to reduce cannabis-related harm to individuals, family, now, and communities. And full disclosure, guys, just before we get into this... We are obviously massive fans of Chloe Swarbrick and we're also for the legalisation of cannabis for a better society. So we just wanted to be clear and upfront about that now before we got too far into things. So just um, a few of the specifics of the bill. You can actually go and read all about this at referendums.govt.nz and choose the cannabis referendum to read about. But basically it means a person aged 20 or over would be able to buy up to 14 grams of dried cannabis. It would only be able to be sold at licensed premises. It couldn't just be sold at the dairy or the bottle store. It would have to have information on it so you're knowing exactly what you're getting and how much you're getting. You could grow it yourself. There's a lot of regulation about this. You could grow up to two plants um, with a maximum of four plants per household. And yeah, there's a lot of rules and regulations out there. But we wanted to sit down with Chloe and talk about all the arguments for and against the bill. Yeah, Chloe is very strongly yes, um, and she has been arguing the side. So we really wanted to hash it out, find any holes that we saw in the bill and pick her brains to see if she could just fill in the gaps. So we went through a lot of her interviews and stuff she'd done in the past. We saw a lot of the arguments against the bill. And yeah, we did a bit of devil's advocate. We also went into a lot of great other shit with Chloe. She is a phenomenal human being and has a lot of insight for us all. So before we waste any more time talking about her, let's actually get into our interview with Chloe. Here she is. 
All right, everybody. So we are sitting down via Zoom, of course, with the one and only Chloe Swarbrick. Now, Chloe is one really bloody busy lady, so we're so thankful <laughs> to have you on the podcast. Chloe, how the hell are you? Oh, mate, uh, complete blunt honesty, but exhausted. But, you know, we're, we're on the horse and we're galloping, I think it's six or seven weeks out from the election. Oh, my so God. Slowly, but surely, uh, crawling by one's fingernails to um, the deadline. <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, um, there's like a week and a half left of Parliament. So mm. uh, as soon as we get through that, then I get to be home in Auckland, campaigning with the community I love and not putting up with a bunch of cranky big babies. Oh. Yeah, oh, and we will be getting to that in this interview. <laughs> there will be questions there. Yeah. So the countdown is on. You are the Green Party drug reform spokesperson, yet you've openly talked about not liking drugs yourself. Can you tell us what has made you so passionate about this bill then? Yeah, so um, I guess the kind of chronology around it all and I guess my own personal attitudes around drugs, there's a few kind of things to unpack there. Um, The first is that I have been really open um, in my past about uh, propensity towards alcohol abuse. Um, So I have been really clear around um, my experience with regard to depression uh, and particularly as a teenager that led to a really unhealthy relationship with alcohol Uh, and you know I uh, took a few years to work through the process to understand how that was essentially just a manifestation of uh, self-medication. Mm. Uh, and attempting to fill a hole, uh, which I think in turn has helped me to empathise with the problem in a way that perhaps others aren't quite willing to compute yet, um, especially given the amount of alcohol consumption that goes on on parliamentary premises. But that's Mm -hmm. a side point. (laughs) Um, I um, also uh, just, I think it's really important to be straight up about the fact that you know, regularly when I'm debating or discussing um, drug law reform and cannabis in particular uh, with folks who think that I'm just like this big free the weed um, 420 person, mm. like I absolutely, you know, lean into the memes. But um, there is <laughs> the reality um, that I have seen the harm that substances can cause. Um, I had a flatmate um, who was from the regions um, and he didn't really know anyone in Auckland um, and kind of self-medicated in that uh, and consumed a lot of cannabis and then kind of graduated into synthetics because his dealer only had that when there wasn't cannabis around. Um, and he was basically working through a lot of anxiety and I think probably depression, Um, and then he went home for the holidays and we got a call from his parents and he had taken his life. So, like, I have seen this stuff. People want to talk to me about how, you know, I, you know, like Mike Hosking, you need to be 50 years old and have two children before you understand the danger. Uh, Yeah. The reality is, is that I know this intimately. So... Um, I'd never really registered it from from the perspective of kind of academic or different criminal justice approaches, let alone a public health approach, though. Mm -hmm. So these have kind of always been these really out the gate, disparate experiences throughout my life that kind of started to come together when I was elected in September 2017. Uh, We helped to form the government with Labour and obviously New Zealand first. Uh, And then Julianne Genta, who was a Green MP in the last parliament, had what you call a member's bill. And she became a minister. When you're a minister, you can't progress a member's bill. You can only progress government bills. Mm -hmm. So we were talking around the table in the Green Party caucus about who would take on her medicinal cannabis member's bill. I was like, screw it. I don't don't know what I'm doing. Like, I'll totally take that on. Um, And it'll be interesting. Um, But I also still had a lot of these really deeply entrenched ideas about, like, you know, the fact that we need to, like, go hard on particularly the supply and, you know, these really quite problematic views on um, cannabis or weed um, and other forms of substances. And I kind of just started falling down this rabbit hole because I love researching this stuff um, and just started to unpack this massive uh, pile of effectively misinformation that we've all been brought up with uh, about uh, or that fundamentally actually conflates two issues. So you can have a substance, whether that substance is alcohol or tobacco or cannabis or whatever, that's one issue. 
The next issue is how you respond to that substance. Mm -hmm. And when we're talking about something like the cannabis referendum, a lot of people are like, do you like or support cannabis? That's not the question. I'm sorry. The reality is I can't invent cannabis. Like that cat is out the bag. It's here. What are we going to do to regulate it? I mean, New Zealand, interestingly enough, we actually have higher rates per capita of use of cannabis than Jamaica. Um, So if we want to talk about stereotypes, like we are 80% of New Zealanders will use cannabis by the time they're 21 years old. We have some of the best research in the world from the Otago and Dunedin longitudinal studies on the impact of cannabis. And we have found and seen that early usage and excessive usage is damaging to people's potential and the development of their brains, physicality and mental health. But also, we have seen that our uh, responses to cannabis, that being traditionally over the past 40 plus years, criminalization, hasn't stopped that. Mm. All of the harm that people have seen has occurred under cannabis prohibition. So you have this problem where right now people recognize the harm that cannabis can cause, but they have a system that manifests a whole lot of that harm. So basically the proposition behind um, the cannabis legalization and control referendum on the draft law that I've helped to negotiate and produce, it's 170 pages if you want to read through it. Fundamentally what it proposes is, do you want a different approach to cannabis which seeks to limit potency, limit access, inform people about what they're consuming, and also do things like educate folks about how that can impair or impact their lives. And that just basically is this common sense approach that goes, hey, it exists, let's deal with that. It's the answer to everything. I mean, oh, totally. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not thinking, like, this is not going to be a soul. It's a soul society. It's Sexism, legalized cannabis. <laughs> we sort it all out. I want to go back to something you touched on a little bit there. So the default defense that we have seen a lot of people fall back on is that cannabis is a gateway drug and that by legalizing it you know people whether they're young or old are gonna start using it more and then go on to harder drugs how would you counter this argument i would counter that argument with the reality (laughs) and the reality is that pretty much anybody who can claim that there's been a correlation between use of cannabis and then a harsher substance can also say that there has been use of alcohol and a harsher substance But essentially, the only way that that myth of the gateway drug works is if you think about cannabis prohibition. Under cannabis prohibition, whether you're 15 or 50 in this country, if you want to get your hands on weed, you are able to. There is no uh, potency requirements, no labeling requirements. You don't know what that could potentially be, um, Mm -hmm. you know, cross-contaminated with or sprayed with, etc., but you are going to get it from the hands of somebody who potentially will sell you something harsher if they don't have cannabis on hand. And this, you know, is arguably how the synthetics crisis started to ripple through communities because when dealers didn't have cannabis, they were flicking people's synthetics. And that was really dangerous as a substance and, you know, ended up being linked to about 50 odd deaths. Mm -hmm. So the only way that cannabis is a gateway drug is under cannabis prohibition where you have no duty of care and no licensing requirements on the person who is selling and supplying the substance. It stops being a so-called gateway drug when you place it with an illegal regulated framework that says you are not allowed to sell the substance alongside other substances. It's literally as simple as that. And does that in turn um, deter people from what we love to call the black market by regulating it. Yeah, so I mean if you look at the experience in particularly Canada, which is probably the closest to us, although in terms of different uh, jurisdictions that have looked to move towards cannabis legalization and regulation, you've got Uruguay, which is actually first off the mark, but nobody ever talks about Uruguay. No, they don't. Uh, then you've got yeah, then you've got and Uruguay actually has a brilliant um, public health model and they've got a real sicko of a president who lives in this little shack and he's like a hardcore oh. eco-socialist. He's awesome. Wow, they've been um, <laughs> yeah, we are yeah, sleeping on Uruguay. Uruguay. <laughs> um, and then there's obviously Canada. 
Canada largely has done um, a lot of good things in terms of public health, but it also has failed on a few other things, including uh, in working with its indigenous populace, uh, and also in continuing to perpetuate some of the uh, massive racial disparities that were prevalent in uh, cannabis prohibition. So you have the inverse of the uh, demographics, predominantly black and brown folks, who were criminalized under cannabis prohibition, the people who are now profiting from a legal market are predominantly white folks mm -hmm. and upper middle class white folks at that. But yeah, you look at um, the United States and basically what you see is that everywhere where they have implemented um, cannabis legalization, there has been an immediate impact on the black market. And there's also been, and this is another interesting point, a greater accessibility for people who want to get access through medicinal um, prescription. Mm. So this has been one of the really contentious issues mm -hmm. that has had conscientious uh, <laughs> advocacy, uh, is that you have a bunch of patients right now in Aotearoa, they have to go through a highly pharmaceutical medical model, mm. which results in high threshold products that are very expensive. You know, we're talking thousands of dollars a month. Uh, and basically what a lot of these people want to do is to have access to green fairies who are able to grow a natural mm. product uh, and produce it to obviously quality standards, but not to the standards that cost billions of dollars in regulatory and compliance fees that you get through pharmaceuticals that are cold pressed pills and otherwise. Mm -hmm. uh, and when you move into that space of legalization, all of a sudden, the greater breadth of uh, products on the market mean that medicinal cannabis products become more affordable. But the other thing is that you're able to bring into the fold a bunch of people who are currently out in the cold operating as black market operators. Um, but in a nutshell, yes, you do move towards eradicating the black market, but the reality is you are never going to be able to create a perfect model off the bat. Mm. Uh, Canada, within the first 12 months, uh, had 65% of its market moved towards legality. Uh, but that is going to be an ongoing process with regard to tweaking the regs to move more people into the legal system. Yeah, so Chloe, we... We know that we aren't voting on whether we agree with smoking weed. We are essentially voting for a better society, knowing that cannabis is being used and that people's lives are being affected by it. Namely, young Māori are being affected by the use of cannabis. And we want to know how we can convince people that their vote is about more than just being able to legally smoke a joint? Yeah, um, good question. So uh, a really good place to start is, and I'm like, this is what I always get in trouble with with our comms team in parliament, is I'm like, look at the evidence. And they're like, that's not how you change people's minds. I mean, the evidence is one thing, and there's some really fantastic um, data gathering that's um, happened under Juliet Gerrard, who's the Prime Minister Chief Science Advisor. Um, so if you go to pncsa.org.nz forward slash cannabis, uh, it is, it's fantastic. It doesn't tell you how to vote, but it does tell you the problems with regard to the use of cannabis. And it also says explicitly that prohibition hasn't stopped people using cannabis. It has perhaps only made it worse mm. <laughs> in terms of driving people into the black market, but also creating disproportionate penalization and criminalization of particularly young Maori men. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you have to unpack masses of amounts of things if you're really to look at the um, impact on particularly Maori communities, because, you know, how long do we have? to unpack colonization yeah uh, but on top of that and land loss and the intergenerational time. trauma and the intergenerational poverty that comes off the back of particularly that land loss and the culture loss and mm -hmm. um, also the beatings that occurred at schools and otherwise speaking through El Māori and now this real resurgence of trying to claim that back and then uh, coming up against people like Hobson's Pledge and all of the full mm -hmm. stuff that's currently happening but the reality is that if we do move towards legalization of cannabis, based on the Prime Minister Chief Science Advisor's report, you will have 1,300 Māori uh, less convicted per year. 1,300 wow. Māori. Mm. 
And I really want to drill into the difference between convictions and jail sentences because, mm-hmm. you know, I've debated people like Paula Bennett before who've been like, oh, you know, only several people actually go to jail. First thing, who's all G with anybody going to jail for doing something that pretty much everybody has done? That is mega mm. hypocritical and problematic. And, yeah. and she has admitted to doing it before. <laughs> Politicians have. And that's the thing that actually makes me the most angry mm-hmm. is right now you have a majority of hypocrites sitting in parliament looking after a law refusing to change it themselves that criminalizes and penalizes and ruins the future of people for doing exactly the same thing that they did you just can't say hypocrite in parliament because it's against yeah. speakers rules um, oh, oh my god but, yeah, so fun oh, fact, I'd guys. suck in Parliament. <laughs> I would suck. Have a crack. Fucking have a crack. Haven't been kicked out yet. You're also not allowed to wear anything except for business attire, but I've been breaking the rules by wearing sneakers. Um, but on so you. That, uh, there's, like, convictions are one thing and going to prison is another. So a handful of people go to prison, but 1,300 convictions. Convictions go on your record which in turn are massive impediments to your ability to travel, uh, to your ability to get employment, and to your ability to get an education. To the point around how we better improve outcomes for Māori, one of the really key things that I'm super proud of um, in this cannabis legalisation and control draft legislation as put forward is uh, two things. The first is that people who have former convictions are not going to be barred from entering the legal industry, but then there's also explicitly in the law the requirement that Titiriti or Waitangi is a foundation part of considering who will get licenses, which is an Mm. inbuilt way of recognising that kind of partnership and moving forward, particularly also in public health. So those are some really awesome kind of key features around recognising disproportionate historical harm, but also enabling uh, economic uh, justice. It would be crazy for anyone to hear what you just said and think, but I still don't want to vote yes, you know? like <laughs> If anyone wants to know what systemic racism can look like or systemic issues, because we always get questions from our followers in our community about, you know, but what does this actually look like? Rewind and listen to what Chloe was saying about less access to education or further jobs or travelling and you'll be enlightened. That's what I was thinking the whole time you were saying that, Chloe, so thank you. Basically, inequities are feedback loops, right? So if you have uh, access to things that you don't necessarily know you have access to that others don't, but for example, a stable family, a stable Mm -hmm. household, uh, and you are not moving around all the time because your parents own that house, so you're not transient, you have this feedback loop of going, okay, cool, I'm safe, I'm secure, I'm stable, I can therefore take risks. Uh, Whereas if you are in a feedback loop of insecurity and instability and a lack of support, that in turn continues to compound and any Mm. risk you take can completely take you off the course of any form of stability. And it's therefore a way more high risk way to operate and live. Mm. Uh, And therefore it's a false equivalence to say everybody has the same opportunity. And that is why you cannot pick your members of parliament based on merit <laughs> we've been having lots of conversations about this i wish we could i wish we could I in order we're, to do that we're not at that place in society uh, no <laughs> well you've chatted a bit about mental health at, at the start and mental health is something that we really you know talking about mental health is something that we really champion and our audience really champions and I mean how you're the freaking spokesperson for mental health of the Green Party what would you say to concerned parents or or anyone who is worried about the long-term negative effect cannabis can have on the mental health of a young person the first thing to recognize is that young people are using cannabis right now and they are using it to self-medicate Uh, And I would far prefer that we have a state of play where we are talking about the potential harms that cannabis can cause in an open way, as opposed to people sneaking out with their friends, as I know many did Mm -hmm. when I was at Mm -hmm. high school, and engaging in potentially dangerous behavior where they're surrounded by people who might take advantage of them. So for me, it's again, it's actually quite similar to the sex education conversation and where we were at with that 10 years ago. You know, there was this abstinence-based kind of education of don't have sex because you will get pregnant and you will die. You know, like this real, uh, (laughs) 
exactly, mean girls. Like it's like this real hysterical way of approaching things. And then we recognized, hey, that's not solving high teen pregnancy. That's not solving um, really poor um, relationship outcomes for young people. So let's actually educate them about the reality of healthy relationships and safe sex. We don't want them having sex. We don't want to think about them having sex. But if they do, here's what they need to know. Mm -hmm. It's the same kind of thing with sensible education around particularly uh, cannabis. And it's a funny thing that I get a lot is people going, oh, how am I going to talk to my kids about cannabis? I'm sorry, um, but your kids are probably talking to their mates about cannabis right now. Literally. And if you're not already talking to them about cannabis, then what cannabis legalization and control is going to do is enable the state and the education system to have a far more common sense harm reduction conversation with them than you currently seem capable of doing. And I mean that is no shade on parents. I understand mm. that there's a lot of complexity and challenges in it. But it is to say that young people do experiment to ask people to reflect on their own experiences and to say that you can't just pretend that this stuff isn't happening. I referred earlier to 80% of New Zealanders having access to cannabis by the time they're 21 years old and trying it. Most people will do that while they're at high school. And mm. if you come from an education system that tells you, if you touch this, you know, this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs, and, you know, you're going to be completely cooked after you try cannabis and mm. you'll never be able to go back to school again. And if somebody passes you a joint at a party and you engage in that and then you realise that the sky hasn't fallen in and your life's actually okay, I mean, maybe your response is to go, what the hell else are adults lying about? <laughs> yeah. And go crazy and do other things. Surely we want to treat our young people with a level of respect that ensures that they make good decisions. Well, do you remember we had Life Education Trust and Harold? Ha Harold the Giraffe. And he literally made me think if I ever went near the marinara, <laughs> I was going to be, like, absolutely fucked. Oh, yeah. Like, it's either one or the other. They think you just don't talk about it at all. Or if we legalise it, people think it's going to be like opening the floodgates. And this, that's the thing. The floodgates are already open. Actually, if yeah, anything... Right? What mm. we're doing is we're starting to put a gate on it. We're starting to go, <laughs> yeah. hey, look, here's some warning signs. Here's what might happen. Because um, some people right now. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Falling right off the cliff, we're just going, let's maybe stop that and have an adult sensible conversation that's driven by evidence and not just like the hot reckons of Mike Hosking. <laughs> and figure out how we do this in a better way. And I just find it really ironic that we are having this discussion about how we reduce harm and increase community well-being with approaches to something like cannabis, which is seemingly so controversial, when we've literally just led ourselves out of a global pandemic through listening to science. The mm. same chief science advisor who advised our prime minister on COVID is effectively saying prohibition doesn't work, maybe you should try another way. And we're mm. going oh, no, she can't possibly be right because I have seen the harm that cannabis can cause under prohibition. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit hysterical. It's not logical. As, as much as you follow it, right, and, I mean, it's, speaking to other common kind of arguments that come up, and this pertains to the one around supposedly opening the floodgates, which are already open. We're just wanting to institute, institute some form of control, educate people about substances, etc., and allow them to make adult decisions, but also reduce harm through potency controls, duty of care, and the ability to um, kind of stop harmful patterns of behaviour through that duty of care and licensing requirements for suppliers. Uh, is the argument, oh, we're trying to be smoke-free 2025. Why do we want to introduce cannabis? We're not introducing cannabis, firstly. Yeah. Cannabis really it's here. <laughs> but secondly, do you know how we got anywhere close to smoke-free 2025? It was through regulation. Uh, yeah. You know, if you push it into the underground, you have no control over it. You don't have access to things like levers on taxation, where it's sold, uh, how it is glamorised, normalised, the kind of cultural connotations of it. 
arguably the reason that cannabis, if you compare the two kind of substances, cannabis and tobacco, in terms of our cultural associations to them, and how like smoking is is not a very cool thing. Mm. Uh, although you know I'm currently actually exploring how we better regulate vaping, so I think that that is a low key a bit of a problem. Mm. Uh, but then <laughs> you think about the associations with regard to cannabis, and you know you've got Snoop Dogg, you've got all of the kind of underground um, rap hip hop culture glamorizing and normalizing it you only manage to get a sense of control over that and make it boring if you bring it into a legal framework and provide people with common sense uh, advertising about the potential harms that it can cause otherwise they're operating outside of the system and they get to create their own form form of culture from it mm-hmm. Yeah, wouldn't Parliament want to take back that full control? Like, you know, I mean, Parliament should want to take back that full control. But the problem is, what I found in my past three um, largely pretty frustrating uh, years in this place is uh, political decisions are not driven by what's best for people. Political decisions are not driven by evidence. Political decisions are not driven by logic. Political decisions are driven by what people think or what politicians think people. Mm, uh, and that is why, yeah, and it's it's basically um, policy by way of polling and focus grouping, which is a feedback loop of mammoth proportions that means mm. that you never have space for an innovative or creative idea, but you shut down that potential for exploration of stuff that works better. Like, I remember having this debate with a minister who will remain unnamed about uh, how we actually better approach particularly the synthetics crisis. And the proposal um, was, at that point, oh, we just increase penalties. And I was like, you know that's not going to work. Like, you literally have all of your officials here right now telling you that's not going to work. And this minister was like, we just have to do something. I was like... You have to do what works. That is what your mandate is from the public. Mm. And I just, at that point in time, came to realize that in a broad brushstroke, and this is obviously like very broad brushstroke, there's a lot of different nuances in this, but basically there's a binary. And on a day-to-day, in the role of a politician, you either choose your career or you choose change. And when you prioritize either one of those two things, you lose your potential at some of the other. And the big problem with that, with the amount of politicians who prioritise their career, manage to do it on the rationalisation that if they stay there, then they can incrementally progress change on something. Mm. That is one of my most loathed arguments, primarily because it's deeply selfish, but also because it shoots change in the foot and it has you think that you are the most important thing for change as opposed to the values in the co-op. And that is deeply individualistic. And part of many of the problems which have resulted as like per that deeply individualistic way of thinking, the tip of the iceberg on that is our mental health problems in this country. Mm. Yeah. We have been having that conversation so much lately about these career politicians who literally come out of uni just wanting to be a politician, just wanting kind of that power they have. Politicians, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Rather than seeing something they want changed or, you know, being unhappy with the politicians you were seeing and so wanting to go out there when you're really young and, you know, get in amongst it. I don't know who did that, but. Out the game. Like I've, um, it's, uh, so like, again, just a random thing. But, uh, so there's this crew who followed me um, to do this doco over about six months and they like chopped up a bunch of these things. So it's quite vignette But um, it basically, I am terrified of it coming out mid next month because like there is stuff in it where I'm just like, basically, fuck it. Like this yeah. is screwed. This, this whole thing is screwed, and unless people decide to take back power, democracy doesn't work. And mm. actually, the mm. perversity is that when people, particularly younger people or minorities, look at the way that politics works and goes, uh-uh, that's all crap, it's not for me, and then you don't engage, is that you end up giving a hall pass to that bad behaviour to continue because there mm. is no accountability. I was listening to um, Barack and Michelle's podcast today and Barack Obama was like, the issue is, and what I'm scared of, is that young people are only hearing about the government when it's doing things that they're not happy with. So then they think like, well, fuck the system and fuck the government. But it's like, yeah. Change the system, yeah. change the government. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. that is how you actually can. And also like... Uh, to be perfectly honest with you, in a country as tiny as ours, like we have a population the size of Melbourne, two degrees of separation, mm. we are tiny. And mm-hmm. I have seen it um, personally, like traveling around the country and 
being able to have these uh, face-to-face interactions with people who think that they're vehemently opposed to you and slowly bring them around on issues. Drug law reform is one of the more controversial ones, but you know it's even on economic thinking through to the tertiary education system or on environmental issues. All of these things, there's actually a shared value set and basis. And this perhaps brings me um, back to what you guys initially asked me about, which is how do you have these conversations with people who aren't necessarily thinking about it from an evidentiary or rational basis, Hmm. or they're thinking about themselves. And the best way to do that is to help them recognize that actually you both want the same things. Their way of achieving it just doesn't work. So if you talk to people who are upholding stuff like prohibition, their usual arguments will be, I just want to protect kids. I just want to protect kids. I've seen the harm that cannabis can cause. Well, you know what, mate? Me too. I've seen the harm that cannabis can cause, and I deeply want to protect our children. How's your approach working? Because as far as I'm concerned, all of the problems that you're talking about have occurred under the prohibitionist status quo that you are seeking to enforce and perpetuate. Mm-hmm. I mean, people, where's the lie? God, please never lose your spark. This is why we need people like I this. How long yeah. be in politics? We yeah. need more people standing the hell up. Yes. Like just, yeah, I know. If you're sick of it, you don't have to do it forever. Like, I have, you know, everyone is like, oh, I said dumb stuff on Facebook once. So did I. So did everybody. But the thing is that we need more human beings yeah, who have yeah. life experience, um, who are just people who believe in stuff, throwing themselves forward. You know, everybody yeah. just book rush at Parliament. They can't stop us all. Should, you should it. care about political party. <laughs> we just get all the young people. That's a, not a bad idea. <laughs> so you and you mentioned it before, a former National Party drug reform spokesperson Paula Bennett are often put head to head on this debate. Paula often refers to the potential dangers of drug driving as an argument if cannabis is legalised. Can you speak more to how roadside testing will be implemented and how we can make sure our roads will still be safe? Really important question. Um, And the most important thing to recognize about this is that this is happening right now. So regardless of whether um, cannabis actually ends up becoming legalized, we have a problem with drugged and drunk driving on our roads Mm -hmm. now. So we need to actually implement better standards and better approaches regardless of whether we end up with a legal market or not. But also, if you look at the evidence internationally, uh, there's been no increase in drug driving unless you look at one um, defunct study. I forgot the name of it, but you're talking to a debate around Paula. She quoted that defunct study in the Mm -hmm. first debate we ever had. Uh, The other thing thing to note is just today, actually, um, Julianne Genter, who's Associate Minister of Transport, and Stuart Nash, who's Minister of Police, uh, both released the uh, start of the regulations for drug driving. So this is going to pick up on people who are driving under the influence of pharmaceuticals that can impair their driving. It can pick up on meth. It can pick up on cocaine. Those are the top three uh, in terms okay. of association to uh, driving uh, crashes and otherwise. Uh, but it also can pick up on things like T- THC and a few other um, mm-hmm. chemicals that can appear in people's systems. The other thing um, which is different or important to recognize the difference between is uh, impairment and something registering in somebody's system. Mm. So this is the case whether you're talking about um, workplace testing or about um, somebody driving under the influence, is that you can uh, have cannabis register in your system up to a month after you have consumed it. Obviously, that's not the same with something like alcohol. So if you had drunk three weeks earlier and Mm. then you were driving and that registered in your system, we would find it all mighty problematic that you then perhaps got a massive fine or went to jail even though you weren't impaired. So the big distinction and where a lot of the work has been going on is distinguishing between the issues of impairment, i.e. inability to drive or reduced capacity or ability to drive and putting others at risk, versus it registering in somebody's system. So the technology we are confident has been developed to the point where we can get that form of testing. uh, And when it is potentially able to deliver false positives, that there is the ability to do um, follow-up testing. Uh, And on top of that, when you have a legal regulated market, you have a massive opportunity to actually educate people about the potential impairment with regard to driving. Right mm. now, a lot of people who may be under the influence while driving are already engaging in, in an illegal thing, have no idea 
uh, how long it is going to impact them for, and therefore just simply don't know and maybe engaged in really bad behavior mm. based on what they think is good faith way of behaving. So if you are able to put labeling, for example, on a cannabis product that says, do not drive or operate heavy machinery within 12 to 24 hours after using this product. Mm -hmm. Hey, presto, people actually can make that decision and on an informed basis and not engage in that behavior. Right now, it's guesswork. And we also know that between mm -hmm. 250,000 to 500,000 people are using cannabis on more than an annual basis in this country. That's a lot of people who are doing this off the back of um, napkin calculations or just hot reckons. Mm. So, Again, it's happening right now. Uh, we're implementing the system regardless of whether cannabis legalization passes or not. But if it does pass, then we actually end up with the added benefit of people being educated about the potential harms of that consumption and things like limits on potency. Mm. Oh, exactly. Um, how, I don't know if this is a stupid question or not. How do you actually test for it? Like if we were stopped at a cop stop? It's, yeah, it's saliva <laughs> testing. Um, so slightly different to obviously the breathalyzer that you yeah. use. Um, but this is the other thing, which is actually, um, oh man, I mean, politics is really gross and it gets really into you. Mm. Um, and I think that's why. That's because um, you care. Well, yeah, there's that. <laughs> um, but also I think that it ends up becoming um, something that crushes people in a way that you, unless you have a release valve, can become quite inhuman. And mm -hmm. um, so I uh, get really frustrated at, for example, the opposition who talk a lot about, oh, you know, there's been more people who are doing things like drunk or drug driving. They actually massively reduce the funding for frontline cops to be able to do that form of mm -hmm. testing. And we know, um, based on evidence, that the major reason people won't drive under the influence, alongside culture, and culture is the biggest driver of it, so that's like your students against drunk driving and all of those kinds of um, mm -hmm. programs, is fear of being caught. If you know that there are no cop stops, you are more likely to take that risk if you were already going to take it. Mm -hmm. So we've also massively invested in those frontline stops. Good shit. Yeah. Wow. How do you, because you were often on TV with Paula Bennett or other MPs that take a, an opposite stance to you, when the cameras are off, I don't know if I can say that they are... Wrong. You know, if they're purposely kind of giving misinformation to the public to try and persuade them, how do you, do you guys have a laugh? Do you, like, do you find that hard? Does it take a toll on you? And are you able to just converse with them in a normal way? It's massively tolling. Um, I think it, it really depends who you're talking about. Uh, one yep. of the things that really challenges me, right, is... Uh, knowing that there are people inside of particularly the major parties who have positions and opinions that are very different to their parties, but kind of per that thing that I was saying before, change or career, they opt sure. for the career, keep their head down and don't push for the change, even though, uh, you know, the public would love to see it from them, but they opt for keeping within the party hierarchy because they don't want to risk that. And I think that that is one of the major problems with how adversarial and whipped our parliament is. I don't know if you're mm. familiar with that term, but we have one of the most whipped parliaments in the Western world, meaning that our parties are effectively Tetris blocks. It is very uncommon to see uh, politicians vote against or in different ways to their party. Um, I would say mm. that we have a slight different approach in the Greens that inside our caucus, like we're far less of a hierarchy than we are an ecosystem. So like all of our MPs basically get to have a yarn and scrap it out about whatever we believe in. Whereas mm -hmm. I know that there is kind of a trump card that exists in some of the other parties, but you know, you can't speak. Yeah, totally. Totally. <laughs> well, I mean, particularly when you look at uh, maybe one of the other parties in government. Um, yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, basically uh, you do end up, and I've got good relationships with um, MPs across the aisle, but it also really is deeply disheartening when you are trying to engage in an argument in good faith and they are engaged in something which is deeply disingenuous and you know that yeah. they don't believe, but they're progressing that argument anyway. And I've seen that a lot. Yeah, mm, for the sake of it. 
it's for politicking, it's for votes, it's for, you know, they think that they can win the argument because it seems like the most common sense argument, but then you begin to delve into all of the history and the research on it. Mm. And I think this is the big thing that moved the Nats on cannabis slightly, you know, their rhetoric is really softened, is that they've realised I'm not moving. <laughs> like, mm, yeah. Come at me, keep coming at me. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, and the public has moved on it a lot as well, I think, because... They have always wanted to have this compassionate evidence-based discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a bit of a technical question for you, and this is more so that our audience can also know how the referendum is going to work a bit more. So it's a non-binding referendum, which means even if over 50% of Kiwis voting vote yes, it still has to go through you know, three readings in Parliament and then a select committee where the public can have input once again. Obviously, you're good at a lot of things. You're not an oracle to my knowledge. But (laughs) how confident can you be that, you know, a yes vote is going to mean legalisation of cannabis? Really good question. Um, So uh, I apologise. I'm a massive constitutional nerd. uh, And Mm. it's one of the things that I really uh, love talking about. So Don't apologise. There is technically no such thing as binding in this country. So there is only self-executing. So because of parliamentary supremacy or parliamentary sovereignty, one parliament cannot bind another. It can only essentially infer or set in motion changes. The Cannabis um, Legalization and Control Bill, um, I'll be straight up with you, I'm on the public record, I wanted it to be self-executing. Just turns out that New Zealand First didn't want to have that debate in Parliament. Mm. Um, So it was kicked further down the road and now we have to have that debate after if we do get that positive yes majority vote. So to the nub of your question, which is are we still going to end up with cannabis legalization if we have a majority yes vote? Basically, this all relies on politics and this all relies on people's trust in their politicians. And I know that that sounds really gutting to hear, but hopefully what this does is when people go to the voting booth, they think not just about that referendum, but also about who they mm. trust to probably to properly implement it, as well as all of the other things around the direction of our country, right? Mm-hmm. But regardless of even if you end up with a bunch, a house of politicians, who somehow, for some reason, you end up with a majority of politicians who oppose it, but the votes going majority yes, which somehow doesn't quite make logical sense in terms of how that would actually align, but it's plausible. Mm -hmm. Uh, There would be such a strong public mandate and through the checks and balances of, I think, particularly um, the media, Mm -hmm. uh, we would hopefully end up still with a result of cannabis legalisation and control. Okay, guys, so if you want, you can vote yes, only if you want, and then you can also um, choose to vote in people that are really going to help us make the change that we want to see as well. Only if you want, though. It seems hypocritical given the uh, the previous talk that we had about how there's so many politicians who are just in it for the popularity contest. But Labour MP Helen White did dismiss you the other day as a quote-unquote celebrity. Do you often find that maybe more traditional and older MPs disregard you for your age but then also for this, the connection that you have with people because you actually know how to utilise social media? I mean, there was, like, I was yelling to um, my campaign manager, Leroy, about it because I found it so funny. So, <laughs> I'm glad you um, did. Uh, I was like, this is awesome. Do, do you want me to talk about my track record? I'd love to talk about my track record <laughs> and all the things that I've done in the past three years. Um, but I think on top of that, um, like, does anyone remember this 22-year-old candidate who was running for the Auckland mayoralty who everybody was like, no, sit down. We want young people involved, but not like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we don't necessarily think that you have the life experience or the brain capacity to engage in this stuff. And now nobody can use that one against me anymore because I feel like I have really worked hard to prove that I am capable you of have. Mm-hmm. So the irony of, um, like, having a pop at me around supposedly being well-known is... 
I don't think it's a bad thing to be running for parliament and people think that you're accessible either. Mm. So, I mean, long story short, I think that people say dumb stuff um, when they are asked on the spot about things. Yeah. It's a bit gutting. Um, <laughs> but anyway, you know, I, I just hope that we get to have those debates because I think that that is where people are going to be able to make a straightforward decision on who they want to represent them. And anyway, I'm running the strongest campaign that Auckland Central seen in a real long time. Mm. And we've got such a mean community around it. It's so good. Um, and, so that's the stuff that makes me happy. Maybe she just had nothing else even slightly <laughs> negative to say about you. There was this funny thing my dad sent me. Um, uh, my dad emails me articles that he thinks are interesting about me. Oh, bless them. Um, but he got he sent me this email about um, the, the likes and the angry reacts, and he was really <laughs> proud of me. He's like, we just get the young people on Facebook, just tell them to vote on Facebook and they'll vote. And I'm like, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Thank you, Dash. <laughs> oh, Chloe, our last question is, can you leave us with an elevator pitch about why people should vote and why they should vote yes to this cannabis? <laughs> why you should vote is, in a nutshell, because your landlord does. Um, because people who don't think that refugees or migrants should have human rights do. Uh, because people who want to suppress wages do, uh, because all of these people who are invested in maintenance of the status quo, in oil extraction, in coal uh, being perpetuated, all of those people are voting. And they have a disproportionate influence right now on the way that our politics works. And if you look at politics and think that that is a really sorry state of affairs, then you need to recognize that the power of the people is stronger than the people in power. And they are only there because you voted for them or you neglected to vote for an alternative. Mm -hmm. So vote for something that you believe in. Go to the polling booth and don't let anybody tell you how to use that. Uh, the reason that you should vote yes in the cannabis referendum is because you recognize that a substance is one thing, but our response to it can either aggravate or mitigate that harm. And when we're talking about something like cannabis, we're talking about a substance that we know most of us have used and people who we know in our lives have used. If you've seen the harm that cannabis can cause, then you need to know that that has occurred under the criminal prohibitionist status quo. Mm -hmm. And we have an opportunity to do better. If you've never had an interaction with the criminal justice system, then you probably still have the same views that you did when you were three years old and learning about the world and your parents were going, you know, you're going, what's that, what's that? And they were going, that's a chair, that's a table, that's mm. prison, what's a prison? Oh, that's where bad people go. The criminal justice system is a bit more complicated than that. Mm. Mm -hmm. And when you interact with things like the criminal justice system with regard to cannabis, you need to realize that there are people in this country right now who are getting convictions for something that you do or you have done and we have an opportunity to make that a whole lot safer, not only from a criminal justice perspective, but also to ensure that we delay usage for younger people and for those with mental ill health, that we support and look after them and we identify them at the point of sale. This whole chat has just been enlightening. Thank you so much. I know our listeners will get so much out of it. And to be honest, I don't care if they do or if they don't, because I did. Yeah. <laughs> no, we love you My guys. show! No. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. no, thank you guys so much. Um, I really oh. appreciate it. And there we have it, everyone. Yeah, that was our chat with the lovely Chloe Swarbrick. How educated is she? She is phenomenal. That was such a fun chat. Such a fun and informative chat. Um, guys, as you just heard from Chloe, the most important thing, regardless of how you feel about the bill or the chat we just had, is to get out there and enrol to vote. Because that's what a democracy is. Everyone has their say. So use yours. Use your voice. As always, if you want to come and chat more about this with us, you can find us on Instagram at Shit You Should Care About. At our website, shityoushouldcareabout.com. On Facebook in the Shit You Should Care About squad. And our podcast Instagram, The Shit Show with six underscores. If you start typing in The Shit Show, it should come up. You won't have to put the underscores. We do hope so. Right, well, have a lovely week. Bye. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.